Am I, am I good? Am I on here? Again, welcome to Branch of Hope Presbyterian Church slash hot yoga studio. <laughs> we are uh, having difficulties with our air conditioners, so apparently they worked yesterday. All right, so, um, and also, we are having a session meeting uh, this afternoon, and you know we've got to make decisions as an elder board on like the best uh, road to take, especially as it relates to this ongoing you know coronavirus issue. And what do we do? Like, how do we meet? What are the requirements? What are the protocols? And what have you? And um, just so you know, I mean, we as a session want to make the wisest, most considerate, God honoring. Uh, loving decisions imaginable. I mean, we want to, you know, plumb the depths of wisdom to make those choices, and they're not easy choices. Just so you understand that. I mean, I, I sometimes I feel like I have conversations with people who don't understand sometimes the magnitude of making that kind of choice, all the factors. And just recognize there are many factors. We hear them all, and then we, uh, you know, we, we make a decision as a session. And right now, our, you know, our session normally has had 10, 10 men on it. Right now, we're really down to about four. And uh, they're phenomenal guys. But uh, what I've recognized in the difference between 10 and four, you know, the, 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 you know, we read that there is wisdom in the counsel of many, right? We see that in the scriptures. And even though I don't agree with every member of the elder board on every issue, like we disagree and what have you. I was thinking this week how much I miss having all 10 guys, because even guys I don't agree with say things that kind of like enlighten my thinking. I'm like, I wouldn't have thought that. I wouldn't have gone down that road. I'm glad you said that, even though we oftentimes won't agree on things. I compared it in my own mind. You ever notice that if you had 10 people who didn't know how to sing, individually sing poorly? But if all 10 of them get together, they sound pretty good. Because certain people of those 10 know how to hit that note. And when I hear you hit that note, I'm like, oh, that's where the note is supposed to be. Because I would for sure be one of the 10 who you wouldn't want to hear individually singing, you know. And there is that beauty of that, the counselor of many. And right now we are, again, vetting five new potential elders. We're going to be, I've met with all of them. Or about, oh, we had, I think we've met uh, about nine hours of just me kind of going, okay, what are you guys thinking? And then the session has met with them. They're going to meet with them again. They're going to be in the pulpit. You'll have the opportunity to, in, during a question and answer time to kind of ask them more questions because I think it's going to be critical for our church that we have proper people on that session. I think it's a very important very important decision for our church to make. Anyways, having said that, uh, this morning we are in Revelation chapter 2, verses uh, 18 through 29. Hear now the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works. Love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have come, what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, 
To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessels. As I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we examine the intensity of these words of our blessed Savior, that we would recognize the message that we are to hear, that we would be sanctified by your word, by your spirit, that we would take heed, that we would listen intently with the intentions of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we do pray, Father, that you would sanctify your church, sanctify each of us, Father, individually, that we might benefit from your instruction and that your name might be lifted up in all the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was uh, having dinner with a uh, friend who attends our church, a friend of mine who attends our church. When he said something, I don't think I'd ever heard anybody say, at least not quite that way. He said that, If he attends church without inviting somebody to go to church, he feels selfish. As if he'd been invited to a meal in a world of starving people who might want something to eat. I I think this is a pretty common problem within Reformed churches, the churches kind of that we find ourselves in. It's almost as if we uh, take pride in being inwardly focused. We, we are thinking about ourselves. And, and, and the fact that we have very little impact upon the culture is dressed up in our own minds in the fact that we are not willing to compromise. We're small because we're not willing to compromise. We're not making an impact because we're not willing to compromise. And we shouldn't be willing to compromise. I'm not suggesting for a second that we compromise. At the same time, we should be committed to evangelism. I've been, I just been musing with the idea of starting a Sunday evening service, or at least kind of, you know, posing that, and yes, yes, yes. But you're not invited unless you invite somebody. That's my rule. I can't make that. I'm not enforcing it, but I kind of like, I, I feel like, look, at if we're going to do an evening service, I want you to invite somebody. And I, I want to look out and see people who I don't know who need to hear the gospel 101, not the advanced things that we kind of talk about on Sunday morning. Well, I think we need to think that way. We need to think evangelistically. And not only do we have to evangelize the nations, the Bible tells us we are to disciple the nations. That's the next level, discipling the nations. Well, we're looking here at this letter that Jesus is writing to Thyatira, and I'm going to tell you, it is a startling letter. It is startling in the language of denunciation. It's startling, startling in the language of, of warning. I dare say, even reading it, There's a bit of discomfort that I would feel in the very words that Jesus uses as he critiques and reprimands that particular church. But you know how else it's startling? It's startling in the magnitude of the promise at the very end. You have this pattern, right, where we have this designation of Christ, this commendation, this warning, and then you have this promise. And the promise here in this letter is, is startling. It might be of interest to note, those of you who kind of delve into this subject, that it is in this letter that the late Dr. Greg Bonson said, you can't read this without being forced into postmillennialism. Now, I know some of you don't know what postmillennialism is. Some of you do. Register that, and we'll get to that. Basically, it's an optimistic view of what God is doing throughout the course of history. Well, I think one other thing noticeable about this letter. It is the longest of the seven letters, but it's written to the smallest church. 
So it's not as if, and, and, the, and the magnitude of the promise is given to what might be considered the least significant church of those seven churches. Now, in Thyatira, we are now uh, going south on that Roman postal route of these seven churches. Thyatira, as I said, was, it was socially and it was economically fairly insignificant. It was one, not one of the big, you know, metropolis areas. It was a commercial center. It was dominated by trade guilds and unions. Now, we might think of unions in our culture as pretty powerful entities. I think they are, but not nearly as powerful as they were in Thyatira. In Thyatira, you were part of that trade union, and you didn't just join, you didn't just pay dues, you had to attend their social events, which often included a meal that generally had religious significance, and the events also revolved around some type of sexual immorality. That's what you had to be part of. And quite frankly, for some people, it wasn't hard to talk them into it. I mean, these, this is the context in which we're reading this letter. Bottom line is, if you were a committed Christian and you wanted to function in that society, you had to behave in stark violation of your convictions. And even as we learned elsewhere, at times, just being called to deny your highest conviction, who was Christ himself, in order to function in that society. The principal deity in Thyatira was Apollo, the sun god, which some people speculate is why Jesus designates himself this way in the beginning with eyes of a flame of fire. You know, your sun god is nothing compared to the true and living God. Also, what we see in this community, Thyatira, in the third century, the heresy of Montanism started. Well, What is that and why do I bring it up? Because in seed form, it was already happening, but here it had finally kind of blossomed in the third century. Montanism was basically, well, there were a number of emphases that that heresy kind of put on its pages. One was the imminence of the new Jerusalem. And what I mean by that was that community would have had in its library a lot of the end is near books. Eschatology would have been a big seller in that culture. Does that sound familiar? Yes, because that's similar to our culture. Another big thing of the Montanists was that they were the enthusiasts. Now, that doesn't mean, as we understand it, that they were enthusiastic. What the enthusiasts believed was moment-by-moment revelation from God in terms of the way they would govern their lives. They were the spirit-filled ones. They basically were governed by charismatic knowledge from God given to them on a moment-by-moment basis, which led them into all sorts of heresies. Another thing, I think, similar to the culture in which we live. The emphasis and even obsession on end times and being governed by what we call the Spirit of God, but really become carnal impulses that we have decided is actually the Spirit of God, but is actually just the opposite of the Spirit of God. It is coming from the flesh of man. Well, truly, there is nothing new under the sun. So we read on, And to the angel of the church at Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Well, I mean, we tend to gloss over this idea, Son of God. I don't want to spend too much time talking about that. We, we recognize the Son of God as a very common designation of Christ. But John, interestingly enough, who in his gospel writes of this a lot, only says it once in the entire letter of the Revelation. Son of God briefly emphasizes two things. One is that Jesus is, in fact, God. When he, when he called himself the Son of God, they were going to kill him because they recognized that made him equal with God. Son of God is also repetitively used to describe that, the fact that Christ was the Messiah. So Son of God means Jesus, the Savior. 
So John right away, or Jesus really in his self-designation, brings that to the fore. This idea of eyes like a flame of fire tells us of his searching and piercing omniscience. That he knows what's going on in our hearts. And this feet like fine brass, well, that speaks of his swift power. H.P. Sweet puts it this way, this mention of the eyes that flash with the righteous indignation and the feet that can stamp down the enemies of the truth prepares the readers for the severe tone of the utterance which follows. It's almost as if Jesus is saying right up front, what I'm going to hit you with is going to be heavy duty. You need to be ready to hear what's being said. Verse 19 we see the commendation. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. This is a very brief, yet I think significant, and I think we should regard it as a precious commendation. They were a church who loved people. They were a welcoming church. They worked hard. They worked hard at being loving. They were faithful. They were service-oriented, and they were persevering. They were getting better at it. They weren't getting tired of loving people. If you were the kind of person who felt like you needed love, you needed a helping hand, that would a church, that's a church you'd want to walk into. They're a church that would be, they, they would have, the like we were talking last week, great greeters. How are you doing? What do you need? Can we take care of you? It's that kind of church, and I think that is something that we should seek ourselves to emulate, this idea that we kind of are, we're we're loving, we're patient, we're persevering, and we're going on and on and on and on. We, we, We care about people. They were a church that cared about people, and they were moving in the right direction in that capacity. I, I hope we all recognize that we should be moving forward, even when we feel tired. My dad you know, was a rough character, not to get into the details, but I remember one of the things that he told me that stuck with me, he would say, son, when you can't run, walk. When you can't walk, crawl. And when you can't crawl, run. And I'm like, wow, I had to kind of dig into that a little bit. But this is the idea. The idea is you got to keep moving forward. You can't, you can't stay in one place, and you certainly shouldn't be moving backward. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, wrote this in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do. In other words, you're doing well, but that you may excel still more. Don't get satisfied with where you're at. Don't get satisfied. Get up and move forward. That's what this church was doing. They were just the opposite of the church at Ephesus. Remember Ephesus? They had lost their first love. They started out pretty good at that, but they were getting weaker and weaker and weaker. But this church was also just the opposite of the church at Ephesus because the church at Ephesus, if you recall, heavily scrutinized their leaders. They had a very strong vetting process at the church of Ephesus. Thyatira, not so much. We read in verse 20, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. We see the rebuke of Christ against that woman, Jezebel. Now, it's very unlikely that there was an actual woman named Jezebel in this church teaching heretical doctrine, similar to the use of Balaam. Remember the doctrine, the teaching of Balaam? Jesus is calling upon an Old Testament personality, an Old Testament character for his reprimand of this church. It was kind of like, if you've read about Jezebel... That's what's going on in your church. Well, who was Jezebel? We don't have time to get into detail. 
Jezebel is almost prophetic for an evil woman. Ahab's wife, she taught people of Israel how to worship idols. She was manipulative. She was conniving. She was an evil woman that we read of in the scriptures. We read in Proverbs 22:14, the mouth of forbidden women is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. What's interesting about that verse, that proverb, is that it indicates this, that it is the already rebellious person who's going to fall into that pit. It's the person who's going, I'm looking for bad teaching. I'm in rebellion against God, and I'm going to, I'm going to find anything that seems to be antithetical to what the Scriptures teach. And so at least a portion of that church was hungry to be led into error by this woman, Jezebel. Well, the problem with this church was that it allowed that woman to have a doctrinal platform, period. The problem right away, now I don't have time, again, to get into a full treatment here, and these are two big words, egalitarianism and complementarianism. It's the idea, this doctrine about the role of women in specifically the church. Suffice it to say for now, and I'll hold by this. I mean, I will plant my flag here, and if, if it's something that you can't stomach, feel free to bring it up in Q&A, email me. It's not likely that I'm going to change my mind on this issue, I'll tell you that. Sometimes you can talk me into something. But the scriptures are not unclear that the role of pastors, elders, and deacons are committed to men and not women. Uh, the, the arguments you're going to hear against that are the most ridiculous arguments imaginable. And I believe me, I've read them. People will say, well, that was, you know, Jesus or Paul accommodating their culture. As if Jesus accommodates his culture. Jesus wasn't one to accommodate his culture. All you have to do is look at his interaction with a woman at Jacob's well and recognize in that one interaction, he completely went against the tide of his culture. First of all, she was a Samaritan. Second of all, she was a woman. And second of all, she was a woman of bad reputation. And yet Jesus had a full conversation with her. People would say, oh, no, no, no. But women in that day were not educated the way they are today. But if you read in Acts, you recognize that the apostles are recognized as being what? Uneducated. No. Jesus picked 12 male apostles. You think Jesus would have been like, well, i got to cater to my culture? Really? You have such a feeble view of Christ that he's like, I'm going to cater to my culture. The Apostle Paul, in a pastoral epistle where he's instructing the church, says that the elder is to be the husband of one wife. Now, these are not gender-neutral terms. Literally, it is the man of one woman. Even more literally, it's a one-woman man. That is what an elder is to be. Again, it's in a pastoral epistle where Paul instructs that he does not, quote, permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, 1 Timothy 2.12. Friends, it's not unclear. If you can read your Bible and draw the conclusion that it's okay for women to be elders and pastors, you can read your Bible and be convinced of anything. These are very clear doctrines according to the Scriptures. Now, the natural question that comes up is, well, why? Why, why men? Well, Paul basically says his explanation, his only explanation at least here, is because it was Eve who was deceived. Now, I don't know where you want to go with that. We could talk all about that. But it was Eve who was deceived. Well, let me just back off a little bit here. Because what we're not talking about here is about a wise woman giving valuable instruction to a man. As we saw with Priscilla and Apollos in a proper context, right? If you read about Priscilla and Aquila, and it was, Priscilla was named first, so likely she was the one who was kind of instructing the gifted teacher, Apollos. But you read that they took him aside and instructed him. So there was a context for that. We should not think, I should not think that if you're telling me something and you want to kind of enlighten me, but if you're a woman, you've got nothing to say to me. That is not what this doctrine is teaching. What the doctrine is teaching is that men belong in the pulpits. Men belong 
as elders of the church and as deacons of the church. This may not be popular, but so be it. I'm going to tell you, I don't care what her teaching is. A woman in the pulpit is itself an act of rebellion. And by the pulpit, I'm talking about a pulpit in a church service. That is an act of rebellion. So wherever they go, they might be right about a lot of things, but they're wrong about that. And I suspect that they're wrong about a lot of other things as well if they can draw the conclusion that it's okay for for them to operate in that capacity. Again, people say, why? 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 You know? I'm like, I don't know why. I I mean, I see this why comes from this idea that we have been convinced that men and women are the same. I don't know if it's obvious to you, but I think any person who's not blind recognizes that men and women aren't the same. We're, We're different. Now, how we are different? Well, there are any number of things, but that's not even the issue right now. The issue is, thus saith the Lord. I mean, Adam and Eve could have been looked, you know, there was that fruit there. There was nothing utilitarian or practically wrong about that fruit. It looked good. It was pleasing to the eye. It seemed lush. Why shouldn't they eat that fruit? You may, you, we, we can come up with all sorts of reasons, but the bottom line reason is why? Because God said, don't eat that fruit. I mean, I'll tell you something else. Eve, maybe the moment a serpent started talking, should have kind of gotten the idea that maybe this is not a good direction to go. Well, the seduction of her instruction led to sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. Now, you probably noticed this to be a bit of a recurring theme, right? I mean, we're seeing that a lot. And some of you might go, well, that's kind of not... Me, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, or that, that's not a big deal. Sexual immorality, I think, is something everybody is probably contending with at some level in a culture like ours, which is kind of addicted to, you know, passion and being, you know, alluring and all that stuff. But this goes back to the recognition that they were in a culture that not only required functioning within the culture to be. Uh, engaged in those meals where meat sacrificed to idols was being eaten, but also in order to engage in the culture, you had to engage at some level in that sexual intimacy. So it's, a, it's somewhat speculative that this Jezebel cult was saying, look at people, you need to function in your society. You, you, you need a job. You need to work. And so you got to be well. You got to compromise a little bit. You got to kind of give in to your culture just a little bit in order to function within your society. Well, to what extent can we adopt modern cultural standards? I mean, yeah, I I, I think about my own kids and how they are just a bombarded with a system of ethics and a system of beliefs that is way different than what I grew up in, and even, not that the one I grew up in was pristine. But to what extent can I kind of be flexible in terms of the culture around me and what it's demanding of me? We're, we are hit with that question on a daily basis. Like, at what point can I go, yeah, I can do that, but I can't do this? Now, let, we got to pray on a daily basis for, for wisdom to answer that question. I mean, I, I don't know what it is for you every single time. I don't know to what extent you should listen to somebody tell a dirty joke and kind of walk away or make a comment or at what point you engage or not engage. You know, I mean, on and on and on. You're, you've kind of go, look at I just, I, this is a, you know, this is, this is a, I have a group of, I have a whole non-Christian world of beach volleyball players who I've hung out with my whole life. And there have been times when we're all sitting together, when they start doing or saying something that I literally get, pick up my chair and just kind of go, I can't even be seen as part of this. You know, and they've all come to expect it now, you know, because it's been so many years. Well, at what point do I pick my chair up and go, can't be part of this? That's hard to answer, but here's the deal here. 
The real question is, once by the wisdom and grace and power and spirit and word of God, you've come to know what the right thing is, will you do it? See, those are two different things. One is, what's the right choice? The second is, will I do it now that I know what it is? Now that God's kind of opened my eyes to see it. Verse 21, and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. We say it a lot, and I hope we appreciate the reality of it. God is patient. In some way, not really revealed in this passage, this Jezebel cult had been instructed regarding their immorality, regarding their heresy, and they were given time to work it out. Time to repent. And they chose not to. It's not that it's confused. I'm not confused. I know, and I'm not going to do it. Those are two different things. You see, friends, what we have to understand is a rebel or a heretic is not somebody who holds to an errant view of the Bible or somebody who is morally confused about the right thing to do. That's not, that is not a heretic, and that is not somebody we would kind of put in that 1 Corinthians category of immoral. Because bottom line is, that's all of us, right? We all, we all hold views that aren't exactly biblical. We're working it out. We all hold views, you know, where the line's not really, you know, we've crossed and we shouldn't have, and we're trying to work it out. That's not what a heretic is. A heretic is somebody who, once they've been instructed, once it's become clear, they go, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to dig my heels in. This is my view. And I'm, I have no intention of changing it, regardless of how clear the scriptures have taught that my position is wrong. That's the heretic. That's the person whose soul is in danger. That is the person who Paul writes, this person will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, he has a list, right? Adulterer, sodomite, homosexual, robber, people who are rebellious to their parents and what have you. And you're like going, wow, I mean, some level, I fall into that category. But that's different than being committed to the category. You understand the difference? Are you in the battle? Are you going, look at it, I recognize the sinfulness of my own mind, the sinfulness of my own flesh, and when instructed, I will engage in the battle to seek to do the right thing and believe the right way. That's different. Jezebel wouldn't do that. She was like, no, I'm going down this road and I don't care what Jesus says. She should have been excommunicated from that church. But the church was negligent. They gave her a platform, and it was infecting the church. God is not negligent. God will deal with those who are introducing soul-damning doctrines into his church. He's basically saying, look at either, you know, judgment begins at the household of God, and either you will do this or I will do this. And in this case, it was God providentially doing well, these next words, which is where we get a little bit uncomfortable. Verses 22 and 23, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Well, I mean, there is a bit of irony in this language. The bed of sexual immorality now becomes the sick bed. She and her followers will find themselves in tribulation. And I, would, I will argue that the tribulation that Jesus is speaking about is the tribulation that we're going to see when we get to chapter 4 and on. The tribulation that many people today think is our future was, I think, our past and their future they're going to be on the wrong side of this tribulation, Jesus is saying. Because all of these letters to these churches are letters that are indicating it is the church that will prevail. Jesus is protecting his church. And if you decide to allow the culture to dictate to you who you're going to be, you're going to be the victim of that tribulation. You will not be delivered from that tribulation. Well, the language here is graphic. 
and the judgment here is severe. I mean, you look at these words, right? I'm going to cast her into a sickbed and kill her and her children and on and on. You're like, oh, wow. These are really tough words. But it is no less true today than it was when the author of Hebrews wrote these words. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I mean, I, I, I know that it's not in vogue. You know, it's, it's kind of a fire and brimstone thing. But I'm not doing you any favors by somehow conveying to you that to be on the wrong side of God's judgment is something that you would be able to endure. It, it, it's, you know, take it for what it is. It's an act of love on my part to blow that trumpet and put that warning forth that you don't want to be on the wrong side of God's judgment. Now, precisely what this judgment looked like, you know, with Jezebel and her cult, I can't, you know, it's not indicated. But I'll tell you this, I know you can draw this conclusion, it's going to be terminated. It's coming to an end. Well, now and then, we see these types of severe actions from the hand of God. You ever read the Bible and God does something and you're like, wow, looks pretty rough. And it, and it almost seems like the, the punishment didn't seem to fit the crime. Uzzah steadying the ark. Really? He steadies the ark and God strikes him dead. Moses neglecting to circumcise his child and God threatens him with death. Ananias and Sapphira, you know, they gave, right? But they lied to the Holy Spirit. Both of them put to death. The church at Corinth, taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, people getting sick and dying as a result of participating in the sacrament of God with, a, with, a, with an improper mindset. All of it seems so severe. It just feels off-putting. If we did do a Sunday evening service and the new people came, I may not go there right away. But, but why is it so off-putting? Well, I would argue this, that we have become so accustomed to the patience of God and to the grace of God that the justice of God seems unjust. Truly, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. If that, if that is hard for you to swallow, that is something for you and me to recognize the problem isn't in God or his word, the problem is here. Well, Finally, it is Jesus who searches the minds and hearts. You might, you might be able to convince me, and you might be able to convince your friends of whatever your compromises are. But you can't convince God. There's, there's no fooling God. Now, verses 24 and 25. Now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. So clearly, the problem wasn't with the entire church. Um, It was only a portion of the church that had been plagued with this immoral and heretical teaching. So the rest of the church, in the midst of the chaos, and I'm, I'm guessing, you know, that if you're in a church like that, you're probably kind of noticing it, Jesus is saying, look, at the rest of you, stay the course. A lot of other stuff is going on. But for those of you who've not been influenced by this teaching, by this godless, and not even godless, but satanic doctrine, stay the course. And I just want to stop here for one second on this phrase, the depths of Satan, as they say. Because every once in a while, and I don't know if this has happened to you, I find myself confronted with people who seem to indicate they have a method of fighting Satan that goes beyond at least what I'm reading in the Bible. Like they've got this kind of, Pastor Paul, let me tell you, there's a devil, Satan is alive and well, living on planet Earth, and here's what you need to know in order to do battle with Satan. And it's almost like I feel like I'm in an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where they open this big old thick book, and you know, and here's how you do spiritual battle and all this stuff. And I, I just feel like we got to be careful when we go down that road. That, I mean, most certainly the devil is a foe. The devil is an enemy. But at the same time, we need to rec- 
recognize that he is a defeated enemy. It, is he a roaring lion? Yes. Does he seek to devour? Yes. Do we need to be aware of that? Yes. But I think James gives a crash course on Satanology. Because, I mean, again, there are churches, it's like they want to major in Satanology. They want it to be their big focus. And James simply puts it this way in James 4, 7, and 8. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I hope we can appreciate what the magnitude of a statement like that. The idea that the devil is going to run away from you? What, what, who do you think you are that the devil would run away from you? Well, it's because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's because the Holy Spirit dwells you. I mean, you're part of the covenant family of God. But then he kind of gives instructions on how to do that. You might go, well, how do I draw near to God that the devil might flee from me? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, what's he saying there? Well, Paul says basically the same things in Ephesians when he says, don't give the devil a foothold, literally a place. And then he kind of gives instructions on how you go about not giving the devil a place. You don't, the, way you, the way you avoid giving the devil a place is by not allowing your carnal inclinations to be in control of your life. You give the devil a place when you fall into your own carnal pursuits. When you're angry, when you're selfish, when you're lustful, all those kinds of things that are coming from your flesh is the means by which you're giving the devil a place in your life. There's nothing tricky about it. It is basic instruction. You don't give the devil a place when you don't give your flesh priority in terms of the way you govern your lives. Now, this final promise that is also, I think, very shocking. I mean, of all the promises, this one, I think, to me, jumps out the most. It is here that Dr. Bonson, as I said earlier, said, if you will, we must be forced into, joyfully forced into an optimistic view of history, commonly called postmillennialism. Now, again, we'll get into that at some point, what that means, uh, just so you understand. Well, no, I'm not going to get into that right now at all. It's too hot. You could, if you want to know, we can talk about it during Q&A. But look at this promise. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. Now, we open the church service today with a reading from Psalm 2. This is... This is a, um, a reference to that psalm, Psalm 2. By the way, just for your information, the number one passage in the Old Testament that's quoted in the New Testament is Psalm 110. Right behind that is Psalm 2. And they both are basically saying the same thing. They both have a very similar message. And that is, Psalm 110 is that, you know, you will reign until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Psalm 2 is what we are just reading here, and that is this idea of ruling over the nations. Here's the deal. When you read Psalm 2, it seems as if this promise is made to Christ and Christ alone. Right? Today I have begotten you. He's talking about Jesus in Psalm 2. And yet as we look at it here, this promise seems to be extended to the entire body of Christ. Here Jesus extends it to, quote, the one who overcomes and keeps his works until the end. I mean, it's, it's kind of, in a way, easy to read Psalm 2. And, and the popular position today is that at the second coming, Jesus is going to come and sort everything out. That's, that's when the millennium's going to begin. He's going to come, second coming, and at that point, he'll cataclysmically straighten the world out. But you can't get there with this verse. This verse is kind of going, no, no, no. The promise made to me is now extended to you, the one who perseveres to the end. Well, where do we go with that? How do we deal with that? This great promise 
of, of the nations being under Christ is now extended to you, the one who overcomes, the one who perseveres to the end. Now, let me just start here with this as we finish in this promise. This should not be thought of as some bizarre power grab by the church. This is not this idea that, you know, you're going to rule over the nations should not be thought of, as is by history will indicate, within and without the church, inside of the church or outside of the church, of people who are just hungry for power. There have been people in the church who've kind of gone, you know, the Holy Roman Empire, right? We're in charge. We're in charge. We're going to run it. And people outside the church, the history is filled with people who are like going, I want to be in charge of the nations. That is not the way we are to view a passage like this. Remember the theme of Revelation? The theme of Revelation is the victory of Christ over all evil. When we look at a reference like this, that you will rule over the nations, we should be thinking about evil, tyrannical, body-killing, soul-killing individuals and systems that have corrupted human history. What Jesus is saying is, you're going to rule over them. These need to be deposed. It's not as if, and don't believe this lie, and I'm sure you've heard it anytime you've kind of opened your mouth on behalf of a law or some kind of cultural significant thing where you think people should bow the knee to Christ. You should never think that you are trespassing by seeking to bring the glory of God and the wisdom of Christ to bear upon the nations of the world. When people say, well, you need separation of church and state, separation of church and state. People don't even know what that means. I agree with the separation of church and state. We're talking about the separation of God and state. And, and this kind of thinking has kind of crept into the church, this idea that, yeah, no, let the culture go where it's going to go. No, that's rebellion. It is an act of love toward the world in which we live to say, look, there is the only wise God and we should all bow the knee to his wisdom in terms of the things we say and do. And when somebody says, well, you shouldn't, you know, you take your religious views and bring them in, you got to ask them, well, where are your views coming from? Like, why is your religion, just because you don't really know what it is, superior to the truth of the living God. We can't cave. And when you look at a passage like this, where do we go with that when Jesus says, to you it will be given this? Because with it not only becomes that great glorious promise, with it comes a responsibility as well. He is saying, you will be the ones that I have chosen to disciple the nations. We think of the Great Commission, right? Everybody loves the Great Commission. I do too, right? Jesus said all authority where? In heaven has been given to me. Is that what it says? No, heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of who? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Is that the end of it? No. Teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. That's discipleship. We are not just to convert the nations. The church is to disciple the nations. The nations, the nations are walking in darkness. And it's our, let me tell you, brother and sister in Christ, if it's not you who bring light to the nations, who do you think will? You're the only, you're their only hope. You are the means by which Christ is saying the nations will be sanctified. The nations of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord. I mean, this idea that things are going to take place, things are going to change, is contained in this promise. There are three ways we can respond to the world by which we're surrounded. We can retreat from it, we can be influenced by it, or we can transform it. Which do you think this verse is talking about? It is the transformation of the world. It is the discipling of the nations. H.B. Sweet says it this way. Historically, the promise fulfills itself in the church's influence upon the world. 
No other voluntary society can be compared with her as a factor in the shaping of national character and life. And the individual disciple, in proportion as he is loyal, bears his share in the subjugation of the world to Christ. Every one of you, every one of us, plays a role in this. We don't have to be part of some big coalition. In your life, whatever you're doing, you become part of this to the extent that you're willing to be faithful and persevere to the end. Finally, unless we somehow mistakenly draw the conclusion that a transformed world is our ultimate hope. I I do believe in a transformed world, but that is not our ultimate hope. And we see Jesus in this letter all of a sudden kind of bringing us in this one last little phrase to where we need to always be thinking. And that is, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The preeminent gift is not a godly or sanctified nation, as much as I think we should move move in that direction. The preeminent gift, according to the Scriptures, and this sometimes is hard to get our arms around, is Christ Himself. It is Christ Himself. We read in Revelation 22.16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. It is Christ who is the morning star. We often think in terms of giving ourselves to Christ. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But he speaks here of giving himself to us. I will give you me. We belong to him and he belongs to us. And I'll tell you this, apart from that, the study of this book, the study of any book, becomes essentially meaningless. If he doesn't belong to you, and if you don't belong to him, we're just kind of talking into the air here. And that promise, by the way, was not something new when Jesus said it. It has always been the promise, going all the way back to Abram, all the way back to Genesis. We read that promise that God has made to those who believe in him. Genesis 15:1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield your exceedingly great reward. It is God who is our reward. It is Christ who is our reward. And I do pray that is true for all of us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray for the church and we do pray that that you would continue to preserve your church, that you would grant your church wisdom, that Father, that you would grant us repentance and that when you reveal to us the error of our ways, that we would joyfully repent, that we would joyfully change our paths. We do pray, Father, that you would grant us the wisdom that we seem to so seriously lack in so many things. It truly is a wonder that your church has, been, has persevered these many centuries. What a testimony it is, Father, to your preserving power. And we do pray always that the central focus of this ministry would in fact be Christ himself. In his name we pray. Amen.